0: As is normally the case, on the second Sunday night of every month, we just do some questions and answers. These questions are submitted by the congregation. However, I do not necessarily feel comfortable to ask them to just submit them on the fly so I make them write it out. If you're visiting, I just wanted you to understand what's going on here feel free at any time to submit a question in writing. We've got some forms out there on the little table that's outside my office door. And then, of course, the box that you can place them in so that as we have this service once a month, the second Sunday night of every month, we can answer these questions looking at what the Bible says about them. We've got four questions tonight that I believe we're going to have time to deal with. But let's just delve right into it. The very first question is one that actually comes out of what we did last If you remember, one of our questions last month was about possible degrees of reward in heaven. And we recognize, of course, that we all receive the same grace, that none of us have anything about which to boast, and if we do obey the Lord, that when we're done, all we can say is we're unworthy servants. We've only done what we were supposed to have done to begin with. And so when we enter heaven, we all enter heaven on the same grounds, and so there are no degrees of reward for heaven, because we're all receiving the same grace. Following that, though, somebody brought up John chapter 14 and verse 2, pointing out that perhaps one of the reasons that confusion is in our world is a misunderstanding of what John chapter 14 verse 2 says and looking at the term mansions there. And I believe that the one who questioned it is right. I think that perhaps some of our problem with thinking about rewards in heaven stems from misunderstanding this passage. In John chapter 14 beginning at verse 1, Jesus said... Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Here the term mansion is used, but what does it mean? Very interestingly, the term that is translated here does not mean what we think of when we say the word mansion. If you go back to the original language, looking it up in a dictionary, I'm not any kind of Greek scholar, but just look it up in a lexicon, you'll find that the Greek word here is the word mone. Not to be related to our word money has nothing to do with that. doesn't have anything to do with wealth. The word simply means a staying or a place to stay. And so when we look at this verse, in fact, interestingly, if you just think about the words used here, it doesn't make much sense for him to say, in my Father's house are many mansions. What he is saying is in my Father's house, and the word there means house, just like we all live in a house, are many places to stay. We've got some family that come and visit with us and we've got some family probably that's going to be here next weekend because of events that are taking place. We're trying to figure out all the places where they're going to stay when they're in our house. You see, at our house it's limited. But what Jesus was pointing out to these disciples is that it is unlimited in God's house. There are many places to stay. There is room for everyone if they will simply come to Jesus and if they will Obey Him and do His will. Jesus is pointing out to these disciples where I'm going, there's a place for you. And you can come there with me and I'm going to prepare that place for you to stay. He's not talking about a gold house that's silver lined. He's talking about us having a home in heaven. A place, not a house, a home. A place where we can call home. A place where we can dwell with God. How did it get the word mansion here? Interestingly, that actually comes from taking what was in the Latin. The word in the Latin translation is mansiones, or however you would say that in Latin. And what it meant in the Latin was simply this, a dwelling place. And so the term mansion is not so much a mistranslation as it is a word that as it was brought into the English, as it's gone from the King James time up to our time, the word is somewhat shifted. In fact, I made a mistake. In the outline, I'll say the word has grown broader, but in fact, I got to think about it today as I was going to the lesson, the word has not become broader, it's become narrower. Because the initial meaning was just a place to stay, no matter how grand or how poor. Now we use it in a much more strict meaning. When we talk about a mansion, we're talking about a palace, a castle, a place of great wealth. That's not what Jesus was talking about. And so, as we hear stories of people living in mansions and we dream about our mansions, we're not exactly understanding this passage properly. Jesus was saying, there's a place for you, and consider why this is important. Look up a verse in chapter 13 and verse 38. Jesus said to Peter, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Then in verse 1 of 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He had just told Peter that he was going to deny him. In fact, in the greater context, looking at what was happening that night, he had told all the apostles they were going to abandon him. But then he turns around and provides them this word of comfort. Don't be troubled. There's a place for you in my Father's house. And I'm going to prepare that place for you. How did Jesus prepare that place? By dying for them So that their sins Could be removed The great import Of this passage Is not that we have A palace waiting for us In heaven But the fact that We through the blood of Christ Have a place there That we don't deserve And that's the point That Jesus is making Some may ask Well Edwin That doesn't seem like A very big question Why bring that up In the public setting Why not just write A little note off And explain that to the questioner?" I'll tell you why Because I think This is an important thing For us to understand We need to dispel the myth of palatial dwellings in heaven. Because you see, the problem is is that demonstrates a little bit of materialism on our part. We dream so much about wealth here on earth that when we think about heaven, all we can picture is the house on the hill. But we need to recognize that the place that is reserved there for us is something completely different and something far more grand. In fact, so grand there really aren't words to describe it and we should not be limited by thinking it's like those houses we pass on I-65 up on the hill with the lights shining on them it's much greater than that and we need to have our eyes focused on the reality of heaven and not limited by some concept of dwelling in mansions and who's going to get the better one and who's going to get the worse one question two What was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? Very interesting question. We can look back in Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. In Genesis chapter 4, Beginning at verse 1, the scripture there says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, She bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass, that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat, And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. What was wrong here? Most of us take a look at this passage and we say, well, obviously, he was supposed to have given an animal sacrifice just like his brother Cain. But that's not what the text says. The text does not tell us that in fact, the text does not tell us what was wrong with cain 's sacrifice. that is our assumption. No doubt the assumption when we have that one is based on looking at the old covenant because the great majority of sacrifices under the old covenant law were animal sacrifices. But were you aware that even under the old covenant law, not all of the sacrifices were animal sacrifices? Were you aware that God, even under the old covenant, accepted? Vegetable sacrifices, fruit sacrifices, grain sacrifices. Look in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 29. In Exodus chapter 22 and verse 29, as he talks about the people coming into the land, he commanded them, in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. He commanded them to offer sacrifice of fruits and vegetables. Look at Leviticus chapter 2. In Leviticus chapter 2. The first chapters of Leviticus deal with all manner of sacrifices that the Israelites were supposed to offer to the Lord. Look at Leviticus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 1... Moses wrote When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord His offering shall be a fine flour And he shall pour oil on it And put frankincense on it Look again at verse 4 Leviticus two verse four. And if you bring an offering, a grain offering baked in excuse me, if you bring as an offering, a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. Notice verse seven if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan. Verse eleven No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. On it goes as it talks about the offerings that they're going to offer. The grain offering. And they're supposed to, you shall not allow salt, to, excuse me, every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. Verse 13, you shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. If you're offering a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, verse 14. you see what's happening here? They tilled the ground, they produced vegetation, and they offered in sacrifice. That's what Cain did. And so we can't just wipe across it and say, oh, it's because it was vegetables and not animals, because at times God expected that. So when we ask the question, well, what then was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? I don't know. And guess what? Nobody else does either. Nobody knows exactly what was wrong. The only insight that we're given to what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice comes in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, the writer actually talking about Abel says in Hebrews 11 and verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Abel's sacrifice was respected because of the faith that Abel had. Cain evidently had disregarded faith in some way. I remember what it says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. In Romans 10 and verse 17, Paul wrote, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So all that I can deduce is to go as far as to say that evidently Cain had disregarded something God said. It may well have been that the sacrifice God commanded of Cain and Abel was supposed to be an animal sacrifice. That may have been the problem. I don't know. It may have been the fact that God told them to sacrifice the first and the best, and maybe Cain didn't do that. I don't know what Cain disregarded regarding God's Word and therefore lacked faith, but that's all I know about it. Abel had faith, and what he did was by faith, and what Cain did was not by faith. That's all we can say about it. And what we have to learn here is that God doesn't give us all the information all the time. One of the things we need to learn here is that when God told the story of Cain and Abel, He wasn't telling the story to answer all our questions about sacrificing in this covenant He had with Adam and his children. He was actually telling us the story so that we could learn how sin passed from Adam on down to his sons, because what happened after this? Cain was angry and he murdered his brother. And that's the point of the story. So, sorry I couldn't answer your question any better than that, but that's about as far as we can go. Question three. We're moving quick tonight. I thought this might take a little bit longer. I might maybe could have got another question in there. This one might take a few minutes. Women are supposed to be silent in worship. Why are they allowed to sing? This question stems from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 34. Go ahead and turn that, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 34. In First Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34, the scripture there says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Remember what we learned this morning as we deal with any issue. We've got to take it in context. It would be very easy for us just to grab these verses and, and take these words and, and make them just say, well, that hey, we're, we're here and this is the church here, so women aren't allowed to say anything at all, period. But that's not what this means, not in context. In fact, when we look at the context, what we recognize is that Paul is addressing a very specific issue. He's dealing with an issue number one of the assembly. Number two, he's dealing not with an issue of uttering a sound, but of addressing the congregation from a position of authority. In fact, what we'll notice in the context is that we'll look back up, beginning at verse 26, the scripture there says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together... See, assembly. Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done decently, excuse me, let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. This passage here, when talking to the tongue speaker, was not telling him he couldn't say anything. It wasn't telling him he could not utter a sound. It wasn't telling him that he could not say the Amen. In fact, we back up just a few verses and we look at verse 16. And it talks about tongue speaking and what's going on there. In verse 16 it says, Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say Amen? It wasn't saying that this person who speaks tongues couldn't say amen to something that was said. That's allowed. What was it addressing? It was telling you if there's nobody to interpret, you don't stand up addressing the congregation with your tongues that has been revealed to you. You keep it silent. But it goes on. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. The passage was not telling this prophet that if somebody else received a revelation, he was now never allowed to ever say anything in any church-related setting. It was telling him it was his turn to sit down, and he was not supposed to be addressing the congregation anymore in this position of authority, teaching the congregation, but he was to be silent. And that is exact, exactly the context when it comes down to the position uh, about women being silent. The same thing. Let your women keep silent in the churches. It's not saying that they're not allowed to say anything, period. Rather, this is talking about the fact that they're not supposed to address the congregation from a stance of authority. What we find is that this is actually a specific explanation or a specific application, I should say, of a general principle found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul there wrote to Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Here we find out the basis for this command. Paul says that the basis for this is the fact that Adam was formed first. God in creation stamped an indelible and unchangeable relationship between the gender roles. And then it goes on to point out that when Eve was deceived it even furthered that unchangeable relationship between the genders. Now if we ever get to a time where Adam was not formed first and if we ever get to a time where Eve was not the one deceived Then we'll come to a time where God's thoughts on this have changed. But as long as we are in a position where Adam was formed first and Eve was deceived, then we live by this rule that Paul set down. And he points out, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. As he wrote to the Corinthian church, he dealt with a very specific issue that was dealing with this principle. That in the church... God has a relationship between the genders. And it points out that our sisters in Christ are to be submissive in church and not have authority over the brothers in Christ. And that's God's law regarding that. If we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, though, I want you to notice something very important here. In verse 35, it demonstrates how serious it is when we start trying to mess with God's will and God's rules and legitimize and get around His commands by making it seem legitimate. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 35, Paul said, If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. What was happening? Evidently. There were those sisters in Christ here who were addressing, who were speaking to the congregation. How did they justify it? They said, well, we're not exercising authority. We're just wanting to learn. Isn't that what Paul had said? They're supposed to learn in submission. That's all we're doing. We just want to learn. We've just got questions. But you see, despite how legitimate they tried to make it, they were still evidently violating God's rule and having authority. And what that demonstrates to us is that we today must be very careful As we men are learning more and more how to deal equitably with our sisters in Christ, as we're learning more and more how we have violated God's will regarding how we deal with others, that doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and try to legitimize the usurping of authority. I've heard churches that will go through procedures such as this. They'll have a class that has adult men in it or, or high school guys or college age guys. And they'll have a woman teaching it. But what we'll do is we'll put an elder in there monitoring them. We'll see, she's submitting to the authority of the elders. Well, now, wait a minute. As a teacher, she's having authority over every male in that class. So no matter how we might try to legitimize that, it's still a violation of the principle here. And we've got to make sure that we don't try to do things along those lines. And folks, it goes with so many different things that take place. we just got to be very careful. I mean, we're not trying to legitimize what God has condemned and try to work around God's rules. But having said that, let's keep in mind what the prohibition is. The prohibition is about addressing the congregation as one in authority. The prohibition was not... Women are not allowed to speak in a church building. The prohibition was not women are not allowed to utter a sound. The prohibition was not women are not allowed to get on on to unruly children. The prohibition was not that women are not allowed to ask questions or make comments in a discussion format. The prohibition was not women are not allowed to teach Christian boys. The prohibition was not... Intended to say that she could never give her confession of faith before the congregation because she wanted to be baptized. The prohibition was not that she's not allowed to sing. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 demonstrates that the command to sing Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 the command to sing, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's a universal command. And to follow that command does not violate the prohibition that was given. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Paul himself talked about the congregational singing, saying that He's going to sing with understanding when we're there singing. The command is universal. And when we're all singing to one another, nobody is usurping authority or having authority over anybody. But we are all equally communicating and communing with one another and with Christ as we teach one another and talk with one another about the will of God. Certainly, while our world does not accept this, we recognize what the Bible says. Sisters are not to have authority over brothers in the church. But that doesn't mean that sisters aren't allowed to sing. We all sing, and we all sing to one another. I hope that helped. Question number four. Are Allah and Jehovah the same? Especially since September 11th, we've been hearing a lot about how the God of the Muslims and the God of the Christians is exactly the same God. And so we ask the question, is that true? Is Allah, the God of the Quran, the same as Jehovah, the God of our Bible? Well, let me say this first of all. The Christians and most Muslims both strive to trace their God back to the one God of Abraham who was distinct and separate from the myriads of pagan gods that were out in the world. And in that sense, and in that sense alone, we might be able to make some kind of connection between Allah and Jehovah. But I believe that Jehovah, the God of the Bible, is distinct and separate from the God of Islam. And we can determine that based on action and what was accomplished and what they have done. You see, the thing that we need to recognize is that according to Islam, the God of Islam gave some promises to Abraham, and he fulfilled those promises in Abraham's son, Ishmael. But our God, Jehovah, the God of the Bible, gave promises to Abraham, and He did not fulfill them in Ishmael. He fulfilled them in Isaac. We can look in Romans chapter 9. The book of Romans chapter 9. Beginning at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Where was the promise? According to the Bible, our God gave the promise to Abraham and to Isaac. The God of Islam gave the promise to Abraham and then to Ishmael. That doesn't sound like the same God to me. The God of Islam sent many prophets into the world, one of whom was Jesus Christ, who is a man just like us, and a prophet that we ought to listen to for great advice. But that is not what the God of the Bible did. The God of the Bible, God the Father, sent God the Son into the world. And He was more than a prophet. And He was more than a man. He was deity incarnate. Look at John chapter 1. In John chapter 1. Beginning at verse 1, the scripture there says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Look down at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Islam's God sent a man into the world to be nothing more than a prophet. Jehovah, our God, sent God the Son, deity incarnate into the world. doesn't sound like the same God to me. In fact, that points out something else regarding this, is that the God of Islam is Allah and Allah alone, one person. Whereas the God of the Bible, we find three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28 Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. The scripture there, is Jesus talks about baptism, says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't sound like the same God to me. Further, the God of Islam sent in many prophets, but he sent in his greatest prophet, the one prophet, his spokesman, that sent out his pure word and wrote it down, and his name was Muhammad, and he wrote the Quran, but the God of the Bible did no such thing. He did not send a prophet named Muhammad, and he did not have the Quran written. That does not sound like the same God to me. Allow me to say this is that if in some way we could ever determine and establish beyond doubt that the God of the Muslims and the God of the Christians is the same God, we need to recognize that they are worshiping that God, not according to the commandments of God, but according to the teachings of man. A man, Muhammad, wrote the book they follow, and they're worshiping him according to that. And you remember what Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9 says about worshiping God, according to the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And so if at some point we could establish that the Muslims are following the same God as we are, they are following Him in vain and worshiping Him in vain, and we want no part of that and no union with that. We must come out from among them and follow the true God the way He wants to be followed. Not the way some man has written it. Hope that was helpful. Remember, every month, second Sunday of the month, we have questions and answers. If you would like to submit a question, please feel free to do that tonight or Wednesday or anytime. Just put it down in writing. It would be helpful to me if you put your name on it. It's not mandatory, but that will help me if I have any questions about your question. Because sometimes you know exactly what you meant, and I read it, and I don't have any idea. And so it's just helpful to me if you go ahead and put your name on it so that I can ask you about that. Feel free to do that every second Sunday night of the month.